Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 23rd February 2024. This is Ian Haydock. This time, Bayer takes strategic steps to cut debt, AbbVie confirms internal appointment as CEO, another RIPK1 setback for Denali Sanofi, new biotech reality in China, and ex-Daiichi Sankyo CEO shares insights into tough decisions. The last couple of years have been tough for Bayer and its investors, many of whom will be nonplussed by plans to slash its dividend by 95% as the conglomerate looks to bring down its vast debts built up from the ill-fated acquisition of Monsanto in 2018. The company said it's facing a high level of debt coupled with high interest rates and a challenging free cash flow situation, Kevin Grogan writes. CEO Bill Anderson noted that one of our top priorities is reducing debt and increasing flexibility. Our amended dividend policy, which considered investor inputs and was not taken lightly, will help us to do so. Anderson has plans for a radical realignment of the company to reduce bureaucracy and increase efficiency, although pushing any proposals to break up Bayer's three-pillar structure of pharma, consumer health and crop science could be met with considerable opposition. At the end of the third quarter of 2023, Bayer reported debts of 38.7 billion euros and the company is swamped by a wave of litigation over Monsanto's weed killers and the allegations they cause cancer. On the pharma R&D front, the Phase 3 Oceanic AF trial in atrial fibrillation of the Factor 11A inhibitor Asundexian, which had been touted as a potential 5 billion euro blockbuster, failed for lack of efficacy and while the company enjoyed late-stage success with its non-hormonal menopause drug, Elinzanatant, concerns remain that Bayer's late-stage pipeline is pretty thin, with few drugs having blockbuster potential. It has kicked off the Phase 2 serious trial to evaluate a first-in-class anti-alpha-2 antiplasmin antibody codenamed BAY3018250 in patients with deep vein thrombosis, with the goal of testing its potential as a treatment option in indications of high medical relevance. As well as DVT, the drug could potentially dissolve clots that cause serious and more lucrative conditions such as pulmonary embolism and acute ischemic stroke. Initial data are expected in the first half of 2025 and Bayer has high hopes for the drug in a space where it's well established thanks to the Factor 10A inhibitor Xarelto. The oral anticoagulant is the firm's biggest seller, but will face generic competition in 2026. AbbVie chairman and CEO Richard Gonzalez laid out the company's succession plan clearly during its fourth quarter 2023 earnings call on 2nd February, but offered no indication that the transition would come so imminently. Just weeks after that call, AbbVie announced on 20th February that President and Chief Operating Officer Robert Michael will become the company's second CEO on 1st July, with Gonzalez moving to executive chairman. Gonzalez, who had signalled the company was looking internally for its next chief exec, has been CEO since AbbVie's creation in 2013. Michael is similarly a 31-year veteran of AbbVie, and before that Abbott, Joseph Haas writes. AbbVie has positioned Michael conspicuously during recent public presentations, with the executive leading the firm's presentation at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference on 10th January, while Gonzalez did not appear during that talk. At JPM, Michael told investors not to expect large M&A transactions in the near term, 
after AbbVie committed nearly $19 billion to acquire Immunogen and Cerevel Therapeutics in separate transactions during the fourth quarter of last year. Gonzalez indicated during the 2nd February earnings call that he would recommend to the Board of Directors that it was time to begin a transition to turning the CEO's chair over to an internal candidate when he felt assured that AbbVie was on a stable path back to profitability following the early 2023 entrance of Humira Biosimilars onto the US market. Although the loss of exclusivity for its top seller, Humira, was the biggest in history, AbbVie has weathered that loss remarkably well. The company reported better than 12% growth for its immunology franchise, despite a 41% year-over-year decline in Humira sales. Skyrizi and Rimbok have been positioned as immunology inflammation successes to Humira, and AbbVie has diversified through M&A activity, including the recent purchases of cancer-focused immunogen and neurology-focused Cerevel. AbbVie reported on 2nd February that full-year 2023 revenue came in at $54.3 billion, down 6.4% from full-year 2022 revenue, but in line with what it told investors to expect in the first year of US by similar competition to Humira. AbbVie's leadership transition announcement stated that Gonzalez will formally retire as CEO on 1st July, becoming executive chairman of the board, with Michael succeeding him as CEO and also taking a seat on the board of directors. Denali Therapeutics said on 16th February that SAR443820, also known as DNL788, an oral brain penetrant RIPK1 inhibitor co-developed with Sanofi, failed in the Phase 2 Himalaya clinical trial testing the drug in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. The companies have moved three RIPK1 inhibitors into the clinic since entering into a collaboration in 2018 for which Sanofi paid Denali $125 million up front, but they have yet to see success beyond Phase 1 for any of the drug candidates, Mandy Daxon writes. South San Francisco-based Denali disclosed in a filing with the US Securities and Exchange Commission that, according to Sanofi, the Himalaya trial did not meet its primary endpoint of change in ALS functional rating scale revised. But Sanofi plans to present the detailed efficacy and safety results in a future scientific forum. The French Big Pharma will also continue to conduct the K2 Phase 2 study of SAR443820, also known as DNL788, in multiple sclerosis. MS and ALS are the only two indications in which Sanofi was testing the drug, but it's also running a Phase 2 trial of a second RIPK1 inhibitor, SAR443122, or DNL758, in ulcerative colitis. Sanofi said in October that it discontinued development of that candidate in cutaneous lupus erythematosus based on efficacy observed in a phase 2 trial. Denali had one other RIPK1 inhibitor that it was developing on its own before it entered into the Sanofi partnership, which was DNL104, but a phase 1 trial in Alzheimer's disease was discontinued and then it focused on DNL747. His 2018 deal with Sanofi gave Denali the potential to earn more than $1 billion in milestone fees based on clinical development of two RIPK1 inhibitors, brain penetrant DNL747 and DNL758 for systemic inflammatory diseases and access to preclinical candidates. RIPK1 regulates inflammation and cell death, and it's a drug target that has generated deal-making beyond the Sanofi-Denali agreement including an alliance between Rigel Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly, 
in which Lilly paid $125 million up front to co-develop and co-commercialise RIPK1 inhibitors for CNS and autoimmune diseases. While hundreds of millions of people around the world were celebrating the Lunar New Year of the Dragon, a quiet shift and new reality was settling in in the Chinese biotech sector, Brian Yang writes. The country's largest contract research organisation, Wuxi Aptek, saw continued downward pressure on its share price despite the company's efforts to clarify alleged ties to the concept of military-civilian fusion in China, as cited by the US House of Representatives Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party's draft biosecure bill. Shanghai-listed Wuxi Aptek shares have slumped by 30% since the unveiling of the draft US bill on 25th January. Shares in Hong Kong-listed Wuxi Biologics, the Biologics CDMO, have declined even further. And a drastic gap between the performance of US and Chinese biotech CROs and CDMOs, usually an indicator of the well-being of the overall sector, reflects a new reality, observers say. Another surprise along these lines during the New Year festivities was the Anbio's shocking announcement that it's seizing operations, delisting from NASDAQ, and returning a special cash dividend to shareholders. Established with the goal of bringing in new drugs to Chinese patients, the Anbio's strategy has been to licensing candidates from Western partners. Amid the challenging environment, another Nasdaq-listed Chinese biotech, IMAB Biopharma, announced the spin-off of its China-based business to become a more US-focused company. IMAB has been developing novel antibodies and bispecific antibodies for cancer and said on 7th February it would separate its China business, its Shanghai R&D organisation and Hangzhou manufacturing facilities. 100% of the outstanding equity interest in wholly owned subsidiary and China operating entity IMAB Biopharma in Shanghai will be transferred to unconsolidated affiliate IMAB Biopharma Hangzhou for an aggregate consideration of around $80 million contingent on certain future milestone events. IMAB retains right of first negotiation outside of Greater China to three of the most advanced pipeline assets and intends to develop itself into a US-focused operation and going forward will have the freedom to explore potential in-licensing opportunities outside of its China R&D efforts. IMAB has encountered some setbacks in licensing its assets to global partners, including AbbVie's August 2022 decision to halt work on the antibody Lemzopolymab in certain indications. Finally, it was just several years ago when Daiichi Sankyo's first antibody drug conduit, NHER2, was launched in the US, helped by the Japanese company's largest collaborative deal ever at the time with AstraZeneca. The ADC has been the firm's mainstay since then, becoming a blockbuster on the back of its high efficacy in breast cancer. Behind these swift developments in oncology was a decision led by former Daiichi Sankyo CEO George Nakayama. While its just-acquired Indian subsidiary, Ranbaxy Laboratories, was running into data scrutiny issues, Nakayama negotiated its divestment to Sun Pharma and rather focused internal resources on a push into oncology led by ADCs. He sees these experiences as shaping his view of business, helping him first as leader of Suntry's pharma business, which was later divested and absorbed into Daiichi Pharmaceutical, which then became today's Daiichi Sankyo. In the second and concluding part of an interview, Scripps' Lisa Takagi asked Nakayama about his decision to remodel Daiichi Sankyo's business, manufacturing issues and his career path and choices while developing NHER2 and mediating the Ranbaxy-related issues. 
When Daiichi Sankyo appointed Nakayama as his next CEO, he said the news hit him out of the blue. Traditionally, a large Japanese firm would choose its next chief executive from a pool of people who had spent decades at the company, especially among those who had dedicated their entire career to their employer after finishing university. But Nakayama was different, having worked at Centauri's pharma business and then joining Daiichi Pharmaceuticals. At Daiichi Pharmaceuticals, he was sent to reorganise its subsidiaries. After Daiichi and Sankyo merged as Daiichi Sankyo in 2007, he also spent years improving the relationships between the firm and its operations in Europe and the US, enabling them to implement more autonomous decision-making with clearer discipline. During my days in Suntory, I was nurturing this idea to maintain a flat relationship between the parent firm and subsidiaries, with more freedom in each organisation, even if it's hard to make that happen, Nakayama explained. With only three years left before his retirement age at 60 back then, he felt his job was almost over. But the story did not go the way I thought, he said. In 2010, Daiichi Sankyo was facing several challenges. An urgent demand to develop new drugs given the upcoming patent cliff for its then mainstay, the antihypertensive Olmazartan, in 2016, and a series of data probes by the US FDA into Rambaxi, which stopped the work at two of its four factories. Read the rest of the wide-ranging interview in full to learn about Nakayama's handling of the Rambaxi situation, Daiichi Sankyo's strategic pivot to oncology and ADCs, and the closing of the huge deal with AstraZeneca. That's all for this time. Many thanks for joining us. All the stories mentioned here are linked below in the description and are just a small part of Scripps' global coverage. Log in to access all of our content if you're a subscriber, or sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.